Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back. Nice to have you with us again. Yes, thank you for joining us once again. Um, so thank you for joining us to listen to the episode and thank you to everybody who's been getting in touch recently on social media to chat to us about all the episodes and the cases we've covered and then also other areas of true crime as well. So it's been great fun recently so thank you very much yeah and if you want to join those guys then check us out on facebook instagram and twitter we're on all of those um, and also on patreon as well you can message us on patreon or you can comment under the uh, episodes that we post on there and the different posts that we put up Um, and on that subject thank you to our recent patreon supporters we have ashton treadgold who increased his pledge thank you very much for that We also have Rhiannon, Katie Hardy, Sharon Monique Rogers-Dunworth, Katie Brotherton, Beth Grayley, Daniel Taylor, Edda Holt, Jevon Bowler, Lauren Piercy, Sarah, Jennifer F, Liz Bedford, Lucy Senior, Ismay Jade, Anita Dietrich, and the following people sign up annually as well. So Amy C., Gemma Gold and Katrin Davies. Um, that's just a stunning amount of people. That is incredible. That blows my mind. Thank you, it's guys. Just, yeah, crazy. It's um, so many of you are uh, joining us on Patreon at the moment. We're so grateful for your support over there. We've just launched our book club. Uh, we're going to read. We're going to pick a book and then read it over the course of three months, and then we're going to all discuss that. Um, and we'll do that every single quarter. So we've just uh, picked our book, which is I Survived by Victoria Silias. Uh, so if you want to get involved in it um, it's available to whatever tier you sign up to support us on uh, so if you're able to support us on patreon and you would like to get involved and uh, follow all of these amazing people then head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast or if you can't be bothered to type all of that in you can just uh, google patreon and seeing red and uh, you'll find us i'm gonna have to get that book ready to start reading good choice because it was a it was a poll wasn't it and everybody voted yeah. so yeah Love it. yeah well done guys we um yeah it was a clear winner i've already downloaded it on audible so i'll be listening through audible that's not cheating by the way we've had that discussion um i also just wanted to um, mention a case that we covered back in september of last year before we uh come on to to the the case this week. Um, so it was the case of um, Penny Bell. Penny Bell was murdered in 1991. We covered her unsolved murder back in season four. It was episode 19. If, you, if you've not listened to that episode yet, if you're not familiar with the murder of Penny Bell, she was a 43-year-old mother of two, two very young children at the time. Penny lived in Buckinghamshire and she was commuting to her office in London and um, on the way something happened, somebody got into her car, she may have known that man, she might not have known him. Um, She was clearly in distress as she uh, commuted to work that morning and was trying to flag down um, fellow motorists for help. And ultimately Penny pulled into a leisure centre car park uh, on the outskirts of London and um, she was stabbed in her blue Jaguar 50 times uh, by the assailant, and this man is still um, free to live his life. Penny's daughter, Lauren, has very bravely um, done a number of interviews over the last couple of months as we approach the 30-year anniversary of Penny Bell's murder, Um, and Lauren has set up an Instagram page, Uh, so if you are on Instagram, then please do follow it. It's Penny underscore Bell underscore murder um there will be lots of important updates on there and if you have any information um, no matter how small or how insignificant you think it might be then that is a great way to get in touch with um, penny's family to let them know and also lauren has actually managed to raise a reward of twenty thousand pounds um for anybody who has information that leads to a conviction it's incredible isn't it because 30 years on to to not be resting on your laurels to just be like no we're gonna keep on we are gonna find out what happens and both you and I have both said to each other haven't we that oh we just hope that they get some answers it would just be wonderful for them to get some sort of clarity on what happened and 
and hopefully for someone to be brought to justice would be yeah. the, the ideal. And it's it's never too late, really, with, with unsolved crimes, with advances in DNA, science. We do see crimes solved decades later. So I think there's a real mm-hmm. possibility with renewed publicity that this could actually be solved this year. Um, I just wanted to mention a telephone number for people in the UK as well. So if you have information, um, then you can phone uh, this number with, with that information. So it's 020 8785 8267. Um, I won't repeat it because you can just kind of like rewind. So yeah, please, please do uh, get in touch on that number if you have any information. And please do follow the Instagram account. It's penny underscore bell underscore murder. And there's lots of interesting information on there that might not have necessarily been available in the public domain. And there's some lovely photos of Penny as well. So um, definitely worth checking that out. Bethan has an episode for us today. And it's something a little bit different, isn't it? It is. So... We're going to be covering a case that was a Patreon bonus episode back in 2019. It isn't something that we like to do often, but in this instance, we felt it was the right thing to do. So I covered the case of Cory McKeague, a 23-year-old man from Fife in Scotland who went missing in 2016 on my own when I just had the baby and we weren't really doing the show properly together. So I recorded it as a bonus Patreon episode. It is never quite the same as having both of us there for a conversation about thoughts and theories and this is a case that we used to discuss quite a lot along with our work friend Sarah back when it all kind of happened at the time in 2016 and so it was always a real shame that we hadn't had a chance to properly talk during that episode wasn't it? it yeah it really was we always say it it's so much better when there's there's the two of us and very occasionally we've had to record episodes on our own and yeah it's definitely um it does hinder the the conversation that you can have particularly when it's an unsolved case as as this is because we love exploring um the the different theories around uh, what what may have happened exactly and when we discussed the disappearance of Rebecca Coriam a few weeks ago Mark brought up Corrie's case and we talked briefly about the similarities between them. Numerous listeners have now commented or DM'd us to ask if we would record a new episode about Corrie's disappearance. Um, There have also been a few updates since I first wrote the script for this episode. So not only will we be discussing the case together, but we'll also take a look at some of the things that have happened since. I haven't changed my initial script, so apologies if you are a Patreon listener who has listened to this quite recently, because that could have happened. Um, But I thought really there's no need to rewrite the script. Rather, we'll just add a kind of a bit of a timeline at the end and just go through what's happened since then. Yeah, and mostly it's an opportunity for us to really discuss it. As, as the two of us so um so yeah we're, we're grateful that we've got the opportunity to do that definitely so before we begin with the episode let's hear from this week's show sponsor so a bit of background about Corrie McKeague so Corrie was born in Perth in September 1993 was the middle child of three brothers and growing up he longed to be a royal marine he trained to become a hairdresser at Adam Smith College in Kilcaddy But after realising hairdressing was not the career for him, he changed over to train as a fitness trainer at Perth College University of the Highlands and Islands. He then decided to join the Royal Air Force and he was posted to RAF Honington in October 2013. He spent three months training before passing out, something his grandmother Mary McKeague described as his family's proudest day. And he was then officially posted to number two squadron Royal Air Force Regiment based at Honington after training. Corrie has been described as white, 5 foot 10, a medium build, short brown hair, and his mum has been quoted as describing him as gregarious, funny, and someone who loves to be the centre of attention. She said you don't forget Corrie if you meet him once. And prior to his disappearance, Corrie seemed to have a lovely, happy life with a new crossbreed puppy that his family said he loved to bits. He had made plans to visit his grandparents at Halloween. And he'd been dating a young woman called April Oliver for about five months. He had a lot of friends. So it does sound really cliched. But when I I remember when I was researching this, I was kind of struck by how ordinary and quite settled his life appeared to be. And I think at the time we'd covered a couple of cases where I was just really struck by the randomness of when things happen and the randomness of life. And this really 
kind of hit me this one. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. Um, I, I know last week we recorded uh, Jodie Wilshire. Um, she was murdered in uh, her place of work, which was an Audi supermarket in Skipton. And um, we talked a bit about social media and not really knowing what your last post is ever going to be because we don't know what life has in store for us and it can unfortunately come to an abrupt end for some people and it is it's just like people are just going about their lives ordinarily and are very unlucky and something happens and it just snuffs it out and it's yeah sometimes it does just strike a nerve with with us doesn't it yeah so in September 2016 Corrie's girlfriend April was on holiday in America And on the 23rd of that month, Corrie drove into town to go out drinking with friends in Bury St Edmunds. He was wearing a distinctive pink Ralph Lauren shirt with white trousers and brown Timberland boots, which I felt was a really, like, it's quite a nice outfit. It probably looked quite good. I remember thinking just, yeah, that's quite nice, isn't it? Yeah, and he he was like a fit guy. He was um, a good looking guy. So yeah, he would have looked like proper kind of lad out on the town, wouldn't he? Definitely. And he was supposed to go with his friends, but there was a bit of a mix-up, so he was left behind. So he drove himself over from the base into town. And whilst he had driven to the night out, he apparently had the intention of drinking and then leaving his car overnight. He got into town about 10pm, parked up, and then spent about an hour on the phone to his brother. The pair chatted and they made plans for the following weekend. And then at about 11, Corrie went to go join his friends at Sobar. At this bar, there was a musician called Nick Lowe, who's a rock musician, and the group all kind of sang with him. He knew Corrie as someone he saw quite often on nights out. He's been quoted as saying Corrie was quite a regular in all of the bars. And at 11.30pm, the group left Sobar and moved on to a Weatherspoons nearby. Everyone who was with Corrie noted later that he was cheerful. He spent time chatting with several different people he'd met. A woman called Megan, who was there on the night, said he was coming up to loads of different tables, saying hello to everybody. He was chatty. He was a nice boy. Um, And she actually said he was quite memorable because of the outfit he was wearing. So that shirt and jeans and and the boots. After the Weatherspoons, the group went to Flex Nightclub. And this was about half past midnight. And on arrival, the staff noted that Corrie looked visibly drunk. Within just half an hour of being at the bar, he was being escorted out. But this wasn't a chucking out situation. It was apparently quite amicable. The manager, Ben, said he knew Corrie. And when the group arrived, he had actually said to Corrie, are you drunk? And Corrie had gone, yes. Um, And then told him that he loved him and gave him a hug before he stumbled inside. So he's not being aggressive or anything. And don't forget, Corrie is only 23 at this point. So, you know, he's literally living his best 23-year-old lifestyle. And that's quite normal, isn't it, to go out on on the town with your mates and get pissed and, um, you know, who hasn't been kind of escorted out of a a club or a bar because they've had one too many. And then about 1am, the doorman sort of said Corrie had had enough alcohol to draw attention to himself, but amicably he agreed to leave. The doorman, Will, said that Corrie didn't cause any trouble. They chatted afterwards on the street outside. So also that makes me think, he was drunk and he was probably a bit too drunk to be in the club drinking anymore but they obviously weren't that worried about his safety because he was able to stand there and chat with them and they were happy to just kick him out. Yeah I think that's quite an important point actually because obviously he's clearly drunk but he's there is a difference between being drunk and between being paralytic and he definitely wasn't paralytic he was drunk um, like we've all been and uh, but able to hold a conversation able to stand up he was he was okay. Yeah, and at this point, Corrie's friends were all still inside the club and Corrie was alone. But again, I don't think it was particularly worrying for them that he was alone. It's not like he was, you know, stumbling around completely. Um, He went to his usual favourite takeaway, which was the pizza Mamma Mia. He bought himself a burger, a kebab and a bag of chips, which I thought was a lot of food, Mark, but you'd probably disagree with me. <laughs> no, oi, oi, oi. Um, no, that's, um, that's standard uh, post-night out. Food, that is it? too much food for me. Well, you are a delicate female, Bethan. <laughs> a delicate flower. Yeah, a delicate flower. I mean, I, I couldn't picture you eating a dirty kebab anyway. I have never eaten a kebab and I will not eat a kebab. They look horrendous. I've, they're, they're I've made a homemade delicious. cooked kebab. I have cooked you kebab would. at home. You would. Of course I would. For fuck's sake. I'll take you on a proper night out, Bethan, and, and we'll get lagered up and we'll go and have a kebab. Oh my God, we'd have a great time. Oh my God, we've, we've not 
done anything like that for so long. <sighs> Don't We'd have so much fun. Even if we just went for like two cocktails and we got drunk, it'd be great. Yeah, so. I'd, take, I'd take anything right now. Oh, don't, me too. Anyway, so um, Corey's night out is going as it should have gone, whereas we don't get to go on nights out anymore. So he's gone and got his food and then he kind of looked quite happy. He played rock, paper, scissors with a stranger. Um, he was seen eating his food as he passed a CCTV camera opposite a pub on the corner of Brent Grovel Street and St Andrew Street and this was about 1.20 and then some CCTV footage appeared to show Corrie having at least a lie down if not asleep in a doorway of an electrical store and he was in that doorway for about two hours before either getting up or waking up if he had been asleep and continuing his wanderings. Just after 3.05 Corrie forwarded a photo of a previous night out to a friend from his phone It's not clear for definite if he actually sent it then or that was just the time that the message arrived. Um, At the time the message was received, Corrie isn't seen on CCTV using his phone. So, I mean, it could have been sent at any time in the night. Yeah, I I don't think we could necessarily read too much into that. And also the CCTV could be time stamped slightly wrong, even if it's just a little bit out. It's not going to correlate with with the time the text was received. So Corrie's behaviour that night isn't particularly unusual for him. So his mum's confirmed that leaving on his own, getting food by himself, sometimes having a sleep in a doorway was something that he had done before. But she also said in statements that he'd never walked back to the base before. At about 3.25, he turned right into a loading bay area known as the Horseshoe, which is behind a Greg's Bakery. And so at this point, I kind of wanted to try and describe the area, but it's really hard to explain So at the time when we recorded this one and released this episode before, we kind of did some photos and we'll do the same again on social media. But basically, if you've ever wandered around the back of a bar or something, it's the kind of bins area that you only see like the backs of the buildings. There's a few cars parked, all the big like, are they biffer bins? The the big ones. Um, So the only way out is the way in, unless obviously you were staff and you went into one of the buildings Um, or you climbed up onto a roof or you got into a car or something, the only way to walk back out is the way you walked back in. So there is also CCTV at the entrance. This is the last place that Corrie was then seen on CCTV. RAF Honington reported Corrie's disappearance to the police on Monday the 26th of September when he didn't turn up to parade at about half eleven. So the base would ordinarily report to serviceman AWOL, but he was treated as a missing person straight away, partly because his non-attendance was so out of character, but also because there had been an attempted abduction of a serviceman the previous July, so there was heightened security. This was only a few months after that had happened. The police began to track his movements, and then when the last place that they could see him was in that horseshoe area, they kind of closed this off and they began analysing the rooftops, checking the area in great detail. The Suffolk Lowland Search and Rescue Team were involved with the police in searching the area around Bury St Edmunds and Honington and that was kind of alongside the RAF's own search and rescue teams and police helicopters. So they really did kind of work quite quickly to get everybody involved but Corrie was not found. The police released reports of Corrie's disappearance to the press showing some of the CCTV footage from earlier in the night on the Tuesday that was the 27th and they asked the public to get in touch if they had any information they confirmed it could be proven that an individual cannot leave the area on foot without being seen on CCTV and that Corey McKeague was not caught on camera again so they kind of were saying like he had to have been in that horseshoe area Um, and there were some thoughts around whether he had left and tried to walk home but it was a 10 mile walk along like minor roads like unclassified roads This kind of seemed really quite unlikely that he would try to do this. And April, Corrie's girlfriend, then cut her holiday short and she returned to the UK after hearing the news. The police didn't have many leads, but the main one that they began to follow was his mobile phone. So Corrie had had a Nokia Lumia and on the morning that he disappeared, it had moved from Bury St Edmunds to Barton Mills, which is like 12 miles away, along the A1101. Phone data showed the police that this journey took 28 minutes, which meant it wasn't a distance by someone walking on foot. And then the mobile phone was either switched off at 8am or perhaps it ran out of battery or it was damaged. And this phone was never found. 
I've always thought that that was quite a weird one because it kind of screams to me that like somebody hasn't stolen his phone really. And it makes me sad that then at that point it's either switched off or damaged or whatever happens to it. And that's kind of it. That's just the end. Um, And then on the 21st of October, the police released further footage showing Corrie's last confirmed sighting. And they seized a bin lorry that appeared to have had um, Corrie's mobile phone inside. But that line of inquiry led to nothing. Bin lorries do have to record the weights carried on certain trips. And this has been kind of a bit of an odd part of this case the whole way through at the time they basically stated that the lorry that they seized was only carrying a weight of 15 kilograms or 33 pounds so it couldn't have been carrying cory he alone weighed around 90 kilograms or 200 pounds so then this led to searches being carried out along the lorry's route between the two towns the police were also investigating whether someone could have given a lift to cory because if he started walking back to the base his mum said that Corrie would have accepted a lift offered to him because he would always offer a lift if he was driving and he saw someone walking on their own. So potentially, um, so they appealed for anyone who'd given him a lift to come forward, even if something bad had happened. But by this point, the police believed that Corrie was not in Bury St Edmunds and the superintendent Katie Elliott stated in an interview to Forces TV with his mum there could have been third party involvement. The police just weren't going to roll, rule anything out. But nobody came forward to say that they'd given him a lift either. The police investigation also covered parts of the Hollow Road Industrial Estate in Bury St Edmunds and Great Livermere, which is a small village close to RAF Honington, on Corrie's supposed route back to his base. Um, along with the British Transport Police, the Suffolk Constabulary searched along the railway lines in the area and some of the roads were closed, but still nothing was found. Um, there was a potential lead in the investigation when, on the 10th of October, a dismembered and burned body was found in a suitcase. Um, it led police to state that the body was that of a white man under the age of 50, but Corrie's family did not get any peace after all because DNA analysis later proved that the body was not Corrie's. Isn't that awful though? Because for for the period of time that the forensics would have been conducting the, that DNA testing, his family are literally thinking that's Corey. One, we've got some closure, but two, what what actually happened? How did he end up there? And then you go through all of those emotions, an absolute roller coaster of emotions, and then at the end of it, to be told it's not him. It must, I, I cannot imagine what that feels like. And that's a form of torture for them, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And just finding out afterwards, you'd be relieved that it's not Cory, but I imagine you'd have a bit of guilt because someone else's family is now having to go through that as well. And yeah, there were, there were quite a few leads that the police covered off as well. So um, people sort of saying that they saw a man walking near that industrial estate at the time of Cory's disappearance. Um things where people had given in tips so they'd close off bits of the road and this is months later but they'd still close off the road and search nothing kind of came of it and they kept on looking at the cctv footage so the police did reveal that in the two hours between 3 a.m and 5 a.m on the morning of the 24th of september 2016 39 people had been seen on the same cctv cameras as the one to record corrie's last movements 23 of those people were never identified because they basically the police not only put it out onto social media and in the press and asked people but they even put a pod at Christmas fair in Bury St Edmunds between the 24th and 25th of November Um, people were encouraged to go to the pod and try and identify some of those people Um, so then by the 4th of December that year 13 of them had been positively identified which was great but still no answers were kind of gathered from that. So they'd been really trying with this CCTV since his disappearance and just kept on coming up against a brick wall with it all. It's really sad, isn't it? Because somebody uh, who was captured on that same CCTV that hasn't been identified, hasn't come forward, may hold the key to Corrie's disappearance. Because don't forget that night, Corrie 
looked quite distinctive um, in the outfit that he was wearing. Mm -hmm. He would have been noticeable. He was quite gregarious in character. So he, you know, he was playing rock, paper, scissors with some randomer. So it's highly likely that he might have had a chat with with some other random people. And um, yeah, they might hold the key. But I suppose this was a night out for a lot of people. And at that time in the morning when they were captured on that CCTV camera, they were probably quite inebriated themselves, so they just might not remember, which is really, really sad. But but yes, somebody may hold the key to this. They may have spoken to Corrie. They may have seen him. Um, you just don't know. It's so difficult though, isn't it? Because I know, we, I know you've laughed at me before and we've had these conversations before, but if I was to hear something unusual or I hear like what sounds like a scream, I always look at my phone, check what time it is, make a mental note of what happened because I think to myself this could be important however I have the worst facial recognition memory for people if I pass someone in the street and then you told me to find them in a lineup I am terrible I have to see my customers three or four times before I recognize them and get to know them by name so especially if I was drunk on a night out and I passed somebody it would for me personally, it'd probably be one in a million people who I passed and unless there was something that caught my imagination and made me think I need to remember this, I don't think I would. And so I I kind of understand that if you tried to say to me like, oh, think about this time you went to the supermarket, by the way, after you left the supermarket, Jodie Wilshire was murdered, for example, and this is a really, really shocking thing that happened. But if if nothing happened in the moments that I was around her, I don't think I'd have remembered or recognised people at all. Do you get that? Yeah. I mean, most of us aren't that perceptive. Mm. Um, we, we might remember a traumatic event eventually in, in lots of detail because we force ourselves to and it's so unique. But I don't know, I just feel with Corrie, he was wearing white jeans. It was quite a bold outfit, really. And I think he would have attracted people's attention. They, they, he's the sort of guy that you would have looked at twice. Yeah. It's so tough, isn't it? And especially because it's by this time you're getting ready for Christmas and things. And what if your night out was in Bury St. Edmunds, but you travelled to meet your friends? I just, yeah, it's so hard. So by the 5th of December that year, Corrie's family were getting absolutely desperate for answers. His grandparents offered a five-figure reward for information leading to his discovery They um, created a crowdfunding campaign, which was to hire a private investigator. So this crowdfunding campaign raised £20,000 within two days. And that just shows how invested people Mm -hmm. were in Corrie's disappearance. It was talked about so much and people really wanted answers with this. So the fact that 20 grand was raised within two days through crowdfunding, I'm not surprised. But that's how much it was on people's minds and how much people wanted to um, either find him or at least get some closure for the family. And that really reminds me, on an almost daily basis, you and Sarah would be, any updates, any updates. You guys didn't know him. None of us knew him in any sort of way other than from the media. But we were all really invested and wanted to find out more and... It, yeah, he his case kind of touched so many people where we were just kind of like, we want to know what happened, even though we've got nothing to do with him. Yeah, it did. It for some reason it just resonated so much, and it was one of the it was one of a few cases that we would discuss at work in lots of detail. So other cases, maybe like Jill Dando, Maddie McCann, but we'd have whole afternoons where, um, you know, in between doing work, we would just talk in detail about um, what might have happened. So it was always these unsolved cases that fascinated us. But Corey's case, yeah, I mean, me and Sarah and yourself, and we'd drag everybody else into the discussion. Um, we'd just talk at length about what we thought may have happened. And I honestly think it was kind of what um, really got the podcast on the go mm-hmm. between us, because we, we just knew that we had this fascination with true crime and and that we needed to do something with that yeah because we'd always be talking anyway so why not do it and then chat to other people as well and get other people involved yeah it was just kind of like why don't we just kind of switch a microphone on 
and um, record it and then throw it out there for everybody else. And I, I also think a lot of workplaces and a lot of friendship groups would have been having very similar conversations around those times um, at length where they're talking about what, what may have happened mm-hmm. to, to Corrie and, and those other, other people that I've mentioned. Yeah. And the the difficulty with this case is, is Corrie's family became, became really kind of um, disillusioned with the police and they really weren't happy. They were really losing faith in the police. So there were loads of things that the police did investigate. Um, so there was an incident where three men had been seen setting fire to a car, but the police later said there was no link between this and Corrie disappearing. They'd looked at thousands of frames of CCTV. They'd spent 6,000 hours searching for Corrie. They searched woodland. They looked into the possibility that Corrie had been hit by a car on his way home. Um, They looked into a mobile phone when they found the back of a mobile phone close to the last signal where Corrie's phone had been detected, but it had no SIM card or electronic parts. So the police were kind of like, there's no way that we can actually link this. They examined, which really annoyed me at the time as well, but there were activities of Corrie's on Swinger websites um, and his family provided Suffolk Police with his username for one of these. It has nothing to do with it, but they have to investigate everything. But yeah, the the family were just becoming really, really frustrated with the police. They obviously wanted to hire that private investigator. Corrie's mum started organising her own searches There was a £50,000 reward offered that was funded by an anonymous couple who ran a local business. But the police did really defend their actions, stating, We are very focused on finding Corrie, and although it is a missing persons inquiry, we have given it the same resources as a major investigation. We have not ruled out any possibility. And I thought that was actually quite fair from the police. Actually, they did put a lot of time and energy into this. However, his family just didn't think that there was enough being done. Which I I do, of course, understand that. If this is your son, if this is a member of your family, you're never going to feel that the police have done enough because in your eyes, they they won't be doing enough until they come up with an answer and, and find where he is or what happened to him. However, I do think that it's very good that even though she was being so critical of them, the police didn't allow that to stop them from doing their job. At no point did they kind of throw their toys out the pram or anything ridiculous, which obviously you would never expect from the police. But even with this person so publicly denouncing them and setting up her own searches, setting up her own fundraising, getting a private investigator, the police still continue to work really, really hard at trying to find Corrie. Yeah, and also there'd been, this story took a bit of a a turn in the media when all the swinging stuff came out and there was a lot of sort of salacious reporting at that time because Corrie was, you know, young lad and they were really trying to paint this image of a guy that was, um, you know, a sexual deviant, I suppose, Mm -hmm. in, in, in the press's eyes, a, a guy that wasn't leading a normal life and therefore was less worthy of um, of our attention and support, maybe because what what basis does it have? It's yeah, it's a, a line of inquiry to pursue, but there are millions of other lines of inquiry to pursue that didn't gather as much attention as as his swinging. So, but also because they just don't sell papers, that sort of a headline yeah. is going to sell papers, and that's really pisses me off about the media. I don't know much about media in other countries, but the media in our country, I hate them sometimes because they will pick up on that one little detail, and suddenly that becomes a big thing. And it's not. It is one tiny part of someone's life that the police need to look into to get a full picture. But also, and I'm probably guilty of it too, but I think in this country in particular, we are quite judgmental. So we, oh, yeah, we and do that's love probably to the judge, same the world over. Yeah. But we do love to judge. And um, we would have looked at the stories that were coming out and we would have thought, oh, I can't relate to this guy as much now because I wouldn't do that. So I now don't feel as much sympathy for his family, um, whether we realise that on a conscious or subconscious level. But I do wonder, there would have been corners of, of the population that would have been less invested in this story as a result of the um, the, the stories that were published about swinging and his sexual activities because the media just went to town on it because like you say it sells papers um but it was just so kind of like 
pointless really it was it was worthy of a mention in that that was a line of inquiry that was being pursued but but they just kind of I feel like they tore his character apart and I just felt that was so unfair and that would have damaged um the support for finding answers to his disappearance what I do think is whilst it's a really really sad part of the story but I do think is um perhaps a good thing that it's kind of overshadowed that now is is now when you look at the case and the story, Corrie's girlfriend, April, is now quite at the forefront. Rather than any of these salacious details of his private life, it was a really sad fact that she announced that she was pregnant with Corrie's baby and neither she or Corrie had been aware of the pregnancy at the time of his disappearance. And she went on to have his baby and she's in the press talking and and has his child in pictures and stuff. And I think it's really nice then that his mum or her mum or her talking in that way and showing like family life more and I think that's great we don't see the ridiculous tabloid fodder now when we kind of look back on the case that's almost like pushed to the back of the internet now which is at least something yeah it was almost like there was a new angle to this story now because it was an angle that could really pull on the emotions of the public because he'd had this child that he didn't even know he was going to have and that's like a legacy that he left and we could all empathize with april because she was just in this awful situation but it was so special that she got to have his child Mm -hmm. So the police then began to look at searching landfill sites. So it was kind of the belief that Corrie had slept in a bin in the horseshoe area and then the bin had been collected. He'd then been crushed to death or um, had been transported and then crushed to death at some point. So there were a few issues with this. Um, Corrie's family kind of argued that he cared greatly about his appearance so he probably would have been more likely to go sleep in his car which wasn't very far away and that information about the weight of the lorry seemed to suggest that Corrie couldn't have been inside a bin. There was then further information released so there was a 26 year old man who was arrested on suspicion of attempting to pervert the course of justice. This wasn't the driver of the bin lorry, Um, he wasn't a relative of Corrie's, I'm not 100% sure on who this person was And the police then released the suspect on the 7th of March and said he genuinely made a mistake. This mistake was the calculations of the weight of this bin lorry. So at the beginning, I was saying about how the police had said that the bin lorry was about 15 kilograms, carrying 15 kilograms of weight. But actually, it was close to 220 pounds. So this whole thing of, well, Corrie weighed uh, 200 pounds and so the f- it couldn't have been him in the bin lorry um, potentially could have been different. However, the police didn't think that this was made as like a statement maliciously. It had just been a mistake. I've always really struggled with how you make a mistake 200 pounds out. I, I get that. I think they've just missed one digit off. I don't think it was anybody trying to cover their tracks. I think the police massively overreacted in um, thinking that somebody was, you know, trying to pervert the, the kind of evidence. So I, I think it was just a genuine mistake. But it is really interesting because it, it really did then make it very possible that Corrie had been in that bin lorry. Um, yeah. Whereas before that that was completely ruled out, but now it's kind of like actually, yeah, that's a real possibility we, yeah. here. We kind of go back to the first thoughts, which were if you don't come out of there on foot and you haven't driven out of there, the only thing that's happened is the bin's been collected. And then the police were basically then searching landfill, so they wanted to search through the landfill that basically the bins would have, um, I guess, tipped out. By May, they'd kind of sifted through 3,000 tonnes of waste. Um, It was revealed that the search had cost Suffolk Police a million pounds. It was going to take longer than 10 weeks that they estimated at the beginning. And this case is actually one of the most expensive missing person inquiries that Suffolk Police have ever dealt with. They were finding items by June within their searches from the right time and place of Corrie's disappearance. So by June, they'd kind of got to the right point of the the landfill site. Um, At one point, they then found um, a human skull, which freaked me out. It turned out to be a female skull, and it dated back to before 1945. 
they actually managed to trace the person who sent it to landfill and said, don't worry, there's no suspicious circumstances. But I was always thinking, whose skull was that? Why would you just put a skull in the bin? Yeah, it's like there's just there's so many um, unusual facets to this investigation. And I guess, you know, regardless of the investigation and, and looking into what happened to Corrie, if you just did all of these normal things and went and searched thousands of tonnes of landfill, you're going to find some really weird stuff, aren't you? So I'm not surprised that all these things came to the fore, but it was just like, just when you thought this case couldn't be more um, unusual with more questions surrounding it, you kind of get weird stuff like that thrown into the mix. Yeah. So 20 weeks into the search of the landfill, Detective Superintendent Katie Elliott announced at a press conference that the search of landfill had come to an end and they had no positive results on Corrie. Um, They then had to move on to sifting through incinerated materials. I have no idea how they were supposed to find remains. It's incredible. But Dr Stuart Hamilton, a forensic pathologist, stated that if Corrie's body had been in the bin lorry and it was crushed, then the rate of decomposition would have been faster than normal for a human body. Um, Bones that had been found at the incinerator were being investigated, but police said it was more likely that Corrie's body was still at the landfill site. And this was later confirmed when the police announced that the bones were actually not human, the bones that they'd found. Um, And there was kind of so much waste on the site. There was cross-contamination possible from other human DNA. And then at this point, Corrie's mum kind of finally publicly acknowledged the possibility that Corrie might not be found. But she again criticised the police saying they handed the landfill site back to the owners and she kind of sought an injunction to prevent the area where Corrie's remains are believed to be from being disturbed. The police were also criticised for not continuing the search and they stated it was not about the money. A former police officer said, if it's not about the money, then keep searching. But the police were kind of like, we've searched as much as we possibly can. It's it's such a difficult one, isn't it? Because you 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 are going to want answers. I totally get it. But equally, there has to come a point where you accept that we might never have answers, and we can't devote police resource on an infinite scale to 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 this. Ultimately, as sad as that is, we it's just not practical. Yeah, exactly. Um, then a year later, so on the 21st of September 2017, Suffolk Police released four CCTV images of people who could have been witnesses to Corrie's disappearance. Um, in October 2017, Suffolk Police announced another search would be started at the landfill site. Um, it would focus on an area adjacent to the previous search area. Lots of things still continue to happen, but the search is wound down. And by the 26th of March 2018, Suffolk Police announced that the search for Corrie McKeague would be stood down because there were no realistic lines of inquiry left. So the day after the police said that they were winding down the case, Corrie's mum and brothers appeared on the Victoria Derbyshire show to highlight what they saw as inconsistencies, mostly relating to the weight that was carried in the bin lorry. Corrie's mum sort of said... Um, basically either someone's lying to the police or the data was manipulated. Whereas the police have kind of said it was just a genuine error. So it's really hard. And I think she's just constantly going to be blinded by grief and uncertainty. It's not, she's perhaps not thinking as rationally as somebody more objective would be able to think. So I, I totally understand why. And I, you know, one awful uh, predicament for her to be in you know this is just awful a mother who has lost her son and is battling for answers and it's kind of being closed down in her eyes so I, I totally understand where she's coming from but uh, you know me being a bit more objective I don't think uh, somebody maliciously miscalculated the weight of the bin lorry mm. when I wrote my script for this episode More than 1,500 people have been spoken to during the inquiries. More than 2,000 hours of CCTV had been looked at. And at that point, a total of 529 statements had been taken. So whilst she was really angry with the police and she kind of slated their investigations, 
my gut feeling is they did as much as they possibly could. Yeah, and I know we'll come on to our theories in a minute, but um, ultimately what we have here is a missing person. Uh, we don't know that a crime's been committed. It could have been an accident. Uh, there's a number of possibilities, and I suppose it gets to the point where they, they might rule out that it was malicious, um, that somebody caused harm to Corrie, and therefore it, it's kind of like, well, yeah, we don't know what, what's happened. It's a mystery, but our job is to look at whether there was a crime committed and we're satisfied that there wasn't. So it's understandable that they would then draw a line under it. In April 2018, Corrie's dad, Martin, acknowledged that he felt his son was probably dead um, and he hoped to hold a memorial service in the summer of 2018 to kind of help him and their loved ones gain some closure. So following the police's decision to stop searching the landfill site to wind down the investigation, he actually felt it was important to have some closure around that. So what I wanted to do now is look at a timeline of some of the things that have happened since I wrote this script and recorded the episode what was it a couple of years ago year and a half ago um and then I thought we could look at our theories as well Mark so in 2019 on the third anniversary of Corey's disappearance his mum said that she has accepted that her son's dead but she said she hasn't given up any hope of finding his remains she still wants to keep searching and getting answers which I thought was really sad but hopefully a bit of a turning point for her with her grief that she can maybe start to mourn him and get some closure potentially. So in August 2020, on the 27th of August, a murder inquiry was launched after human remains were found in two bin bags in the River Stour in Sudbury. A post-mortem examination carried out by the Home Office actually proved inconclusive Nicola, Corrie's mum, thought the remains could have been her son's. By September the 4th, however, the police confirmed that the remains were not Corrie's. So I felt really sad for her with this, that she kind of has something that she, again, like the, the remains that were found really shortly after he disappeared, to have that almost to hold on to and then taken away from them again. And I remember when that came out, back in August and thinking oh my god imagine if this gives them the closure of this case I think a lot of people in this country straight away thought about Corrie I know that we all discussed on the Facebook page at the time who could it be and Corrie was a name that came up a lot but it wasn't him and then on the 5th of November um, the chief coroner of England and Wales confirmed that he has actually directed an inquest to be held so the inquest was opened on the 11th of November and adjourned and basically that it was hoping that it would open again in two weeks time but unfortunately it couldn't so it's been postponed and it's still postponed at the moment but they will be holding a full inquest into Corrie's disappearance. So Corrie's mum Nicola said that the inquest process would result in somebody that is completely independent and not emotionally attached as we are who can look at all the evidence and she said to the press, although I don't expect that they're going to be able to tell us how he died, when he died or where he died, what we're hoping is that after looking at all the evidence, they will able to be able to tell me and us as a family that there is nothing else we could do or be able to do to find Corrie. I thought it was very interesting and it'd be really interesting to hear more when the inquest does take place and, and what the official reports are on this. So I think... We've both got our theory and I think we both have the same theory of what happened with Corrie, but I thought we could look at some of the theories from this case um, in a little bit more detail and then we can maybe say to the listeners what we think happened. Because um, obviously last time I had to kind of just almost discuss them on my own, which is a bit awkward. So um, some people have said that there's the possibility that Corrie killed himself because of the pressures of fatherhood. Straight away... April hadn't told him that she was pregnant. She didn't even know she was pregnant. So I think that's a ridiculous thing to kind of come out and try and say. But also with the idea of him killing himself, I know you never know what's going on with someone, but he chatted to his brother for an hour and his brother said nothing seemed odd. He'd had a night out, which was no way out of the ordinary for his usual nights out. He had plans in the future. It doesn't sit right with me at all, this theory. No. Me neither. I, one, I just really don't think that he knew that he was going to be a dad. And two, um, there, there was just like you say, there was no um, 
idea that he was feeling depressed or planning uh, to end his own life. So I just, I just don't, I just don't buy that at all. And if he was, it's a weird place to decide to go and take your own life as well. So yeah, yeah. Um, CCTV cameras seem to show that Corey entered the horseshoe area and didn't leave. But the cameras don't provide 100% coverage because nothing could. And actually, his mum kind of said, if the police only have CCTV footage on the Sunday, no, the Saturday morning up until midday, what if Corrie then woke up and left the area in the afternoon? Um, If that had happened, they wouldn't have seen the CCTV and it all gets repeated over or um, like replaced after 28 days or deleted so they would never know for definite so potentially he woke up in the afternoon and then walked out and wasn't caught on cctv it's possible i just don't buy that he would fall asleep at you know three four in the morning um sleeping rough essentially and then not wake for eight nine hours um you're just not going to get a full sleep are you especially when you've not had when you've had two hours in a doorway already yeah and this is like the back of a number of shops so staff would have been arriving on the saturday morning and parking near to him uh to to open up the shop and and go to work so there would have been a lot of commotion come sort of half eight nine o'clock that would have woken him if if he was asleep around there especially bin lorries coming in and collecting they're loud so yeah Um, A retired senior detective, Colin Sutton, who we talk about so much, went on record stating that Corrie's disappearance had not been intentional because making preparations always leaves a digital footprint and there were no signs of this available to the police. He doubted that Corrie would go, uh, would have known anything about where the CCTV was. So Corrie didn't necessarily choose to go missing. And I tend to agree with him that either other people were involved or it was an accident in some way. Um, the idea that he chose to disappear is quite doubtful again because of the fact that he was making so many plans with his brother he booked flights to go home for halloween he wouldn't just leave his dog at home this new dog that he'd got without sorting things out for the dog so considering his social media and his bank accounts hadn't been touched i tend to agree with retired detectives colin sutton that he didn't choose to go missing yeah, I think I think you can definitely rule out that he's intentionally disappeared and you can definitely rule out suicide. Um, the idea that he walked home and been in an accident seems unlikely because there was no CCTV of him leaving the horseshoe area and there were no reports of any accidents on the roads around the area at the time. Um, surely even if you had been involved in a minor collision or something, you'd have reported or even if you didn't report it at the time you'd then think, oh, I wonder if it's helpful to the police. Um, And there was a police statement made concerning a knife that was found near to where Corrie went missing. Um, The person who it was handed to was spoken to. They were brought to the police station and they'd kind of handed it over to the police, but they ruled it out as um, important, unimportant, sorry. Um, Corrie's dad kind of thinks there's more to it but the police's response was that the area where the knife was found was searched during the initial stages of the inquiry and it wasn't there at that point so the knife was left sometime afterwards so it's probably nothing to do with it Um, and there was obviously that attempted kidnapping in July of a serviceman Um, this was at RAF Marham which was 37 miles away parallels have been drawn between this and Corrie's disappearance This was one route for the investigation and a family liaison officer with the police Scotland said it was something that they weren't really discussing with family liaison. Um, Finally, that link was ruled out. So that was kind of what the police said. They were like, well, there's no link between these two at all. So what's your thoughts then, Mark? What's your theory? I think um, I really I think he went he was obviously drunk. He went into the horseshoe area. And I don't think he left that area on foot. Um, so that for me rules out him disappearing voluntarily. I think he did go into that bin lorry, um, or, or into the bin basically first, which was then emptied into the bin lorry, which is all mechanical. There's not people involved in that. So they wouldn't have seen him. Um, I, I think like so many things could have happened. He could have had a fit or something around the back of of those shops and 
fell into the bin somehow and the bin then you know he's then unconscious as as he goes into the lorry I, it's just like i just don't know i think he could have again there's cctv there so we we are pretty certain that nobody else walked around that area after him because i suppose you could say that um he was in a fight and he was maybe he was stabbed and they disposed of the body in a bin knowing that the bins were going to be collected the next day or in a few hours time so you could say that happened or you could if you could, again you could say that maybe he did sleep for 8 or 9 hours and the cctv had kind of relooped and he'd walked out of the horseshoe and just disappeared i i just now i i I feel like there's so many possibilities to this the the thing that i found really interesting with this is um cory's mum was adamant he wouldn't have got into a bin he had his image to protect that sort of thing but cory's dad had actually said he had slept in and on top of bins in the past so i'm kind of like well which one is it which one's which one's true and even if he never would have normally done something, drunk people do stupid things. So even if he wouldn't normally have got in a bin because he doesn't like his appearance looking rubbish, he may have done that in this situation. So I'm the same as you. I think that he was for some reason in a bin that was then collected. Um, And I I just think if, if it was going to be a spur of the moment thing there'd have been more evidence you know if he'd been in a fight there might be blood spatters or something and from the way that it's all been described it probably wasn't someone you know like stalking and premeditated decided to do it in a certain way because how would they know he'd go into that horseshoe area would most people know when bin day was for a business especially if it's a Saturday yeah I don't know I just think a really really sad sad accident where unfortunately a miscalculation or a misinterpretation of the weight or something to do with the weight of that bin lorry meant that the police then didn't investigate it properly until the following sort of summer really is really really tragic but I think it was an error an honest mistake even though a terrible one and I think that it was just all a one big accident from for Corrie to be crushed potentially. I think had that mistake not been made in in the calculation of the bin lorry's weight, the police may have been able to um, pursue the right line of inquiry and they may have found his body more quickly. Um, I think it was almost too late. Once they'd they'd worked out that that was a viable possibility that he had gone into that bin lorry, I think any kind of evidence of a body was was lost by then. Um, So I think they were were fighting a losing battle in in sifting through all of that rubbish to try and find any remnants of his body. I just, I just, yeah, I don't, don't really buy that. I, I think it is one of those. It's I know we discussed um, the the disappearance of Rebecca Corium a couple of weeks ago. With that one, I'm pretty certain that there there was probably a, a crime that was committed. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this one, I, I'm like equally as certain that a crime wasn't committed. I, I would never rule it out. It could have happened. Something that we can't even begin to imagine could have happened in the early hours of that morning to Corrie. But I think... Everything is pointing to me that he sleeps in unusual places on a night out when he's drunk. He's somehow gotten into the bin himself. He's fallen into a deep sleep. The bin, the lor- the bin lorry has then arrived and it's kind of uh, loaded the contents of that bin into the lorry. Corey has very sadly then been crushed uh, along with his mobile phone. Well, that's kind of gone into the lorry and it's recorded that that distance that it travelled before being switched mm-hmm. off or, the, you know, I would say literally the battery just... Or crushed or something. Yeah, it's either been crushed or the battery's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think um, it's it's a really important case we wanted to discuss. We, we don't know um, whether a crime has or hasn't been committed, but it, it, it we were a bit wary of covering it because ultimately to us, I think it's a case of an accident and this is a true crime show. But there is, it still warrants that discussion um, and there was a police investigation into it. But I think, yeah, for me, it's um, definitive that that he got into that bin and he was he willingly did that and it was collected and he was 
um, emptied into the, the truck and was then crushed, unfortunately. So I'm really glad that we were able to kind of recover this case and revisit this. And um, hopefully some answers potentially come out of the inquest as and when that's able to happen. Um, so we will keep you guys all updated on social media. Um, we'll share any news reports that come out as we normally would anyway. So thank you so much for listening. And please do come over to the Facebook group or the Instagram page or Twitter or Patreon and um, leave us a comment and let you let us know your thoughts. What do you think happened to Corrie? Do you think that the same as us or do you think something completely different? Yeah, definitely. Um, hunt us out and, um, and let us know. Let us know your theory on this one. Thank you so much for joining us once again, guys. And we'll be back with you next week. Bye. Bye.